Hello, this is the Psychedelic Theology Podcast, and I'm Caleb Graves, your very sane, very normal host. This is the third part of a series about psychedelics, Christianity, and death. In our first episode, we talked about how religion and psychedelics can help us build a relationship with death and our own mortality. Then, in our second, we discussed how psychedelics can help us wrestle with the concepts of heaven, hell, and physical places in the afterlife. If you haven't listened to those already, I strongly suggest starting there since some of the ideas we'll be considering today build upon what we talked about. And as always, please consider subscribing to my Patreon to keep this ministry funded, and remember to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. I've got a Patreon-only episode, my first Patreon-only episode coming out soon, that starts to explore how the CIA, a J.P. Morgan vice president, and Christian missionaries inadvertently worked together to popularize magic mushrooms and begin the psychedelic revolution in North America. I've been able to access a number of records that weren't available to other people previously, or at least not talked about in the psychedelic subculture, so I'm hoping this is the first step towards building a number of articles, maybe an independent podcast, and maybe even my dissertation for when, hopefully, I'll be able to start my PhD sometime in the near future. So you won't want to miss this, and again, it's accessible to anyone who joins my Patreon starting at just $5 a month. So today, we're going to close out our conversation about death by discussing two topics which are in many ways closely connected, theosis and apocatastasis. I tried to turn these topics into a single 30-minute episode, but this was just not feasible. I kept cutting and recutting, and it felt like I was constantly missing something. So this month, I've opted to skip last month's episode, and I'm giving you two back-to-back episodes taking on theosis, apocatastasis, and their connection to psychedelics. Now, I can already hear some of you falling asleep just like I did in my 8 a.m. Greek class not too long ago. So let me at least try to unpack what these words mean and how we're going to be discussing them throughout the next hour or so. The first word, theosis, means to be made into God. You may hear me refer to this as deification or divinization throughout this podcast. And that's different, I might add, than divination, which is a way to try to get revelation from God. Instead, this is a process by which human beings like you and like me can become divine, sharing the very nature of God and entering into unity with God. The second Greek word here, apokatastasis, means something to the extent of return or restoration. It is another word for a particular type of Christian universalism. It means that eventually, After all human beings die and the world fades away, everyone and all things will be resurrected, redeemed, and restored to a state of perfect love, peace, wholeness, and unity with God. All evil in the universe will cease, 
and all of creation will be intertwined closely in the unity of God's very being. Since we're finishing up our series on death, I wanted to talk about this subject to provide one lesser-known, more mystical Christian theory about what happens after death. And it's one that I think fits very well into the psychedelic experience. We've already talked about heaven, hell, and the complexity of authentic Christian cosmology. And I hope that the present discussion can be considered an extension of those ideas. Remember, when we talked about it, the goal of Christianity, despite what a youth pastor may have told you during an evangelism meeting in 2012, the goal is not to go to heaven. And it's certainly not to avoid hell. That's not the goal of Christianity. The spiritual realm is far more complex and bizarre than we could have imagined. And the ideas I'm about to share with you here about what happens when you die might feel complex and bizarre. They might feel very foreign, but they're actually found regularly within Christian tradition. The idea of deification or universalism is especially foreign to Christians who grew up in America, Protestants in particular. So I'm going to have to take a little more time to describe theology on today's podcast. These ancient ideas can be found many places in church tradition and scripture. So first, let's put aside the process of deification or theosis for a bit and look at the easier of the two concepts first. Universal salvation. Universal restoration. Christianity is popularly thought to have a limited salvation. When you die, you either go to heaven or are resurrected to life, or you go to hell and are resurrected to eternal torment, and this is a binary, yes or no, in or out way of looking for salvation. And for the most part, uh, Christians have tended to speak as if there will be very few people who enter into salvation. But what if that wasn't true? What if for a second we put aside what we may have most often heard about heaven, hell, salvation, and damnation, and instead embrace the infinite possibilities of the afterlife and the spiritual realm? What if we considered for a second whether everyone, everywhere, at all times, could be saved? What if the entire universe could be redeemed and restored? This is the idea behind apocatastasis, and its roots are deep within Christian tradition, going back to the Bible itself. Johannine literature, that's John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and depending on who you ask, Revelation, these works are particularly dense with promises of universal salvation. 1st John 2.2, speaking of the crucifixion, says that Jesus, quote, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. In John 12:32, Jesus, again speaking of his crucifixion, says that, quote, all people will be drawn to himself when he is crucified, a sentiment which is echoed by his own words dying on the cross. For on the cross, Jesus prays to his Father God in John 17, 2, that the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, 
to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. In other words, all flesh, all beings. And despite his sometimes bad reputation in progressive Christian and non-Christian circles, the Apostle Paul, who wrote the majority of the works in the Old Testament more than any other author, he was actually a pretty radical dude, and his writings contain proclamations about universal salvation as well. Throughout the Epistle of Romans in particular, Paul announces that Jesus, quote, brings life to all people that he will, quote, have mercy on all, that all things belong to God, and of course, eventually, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Then, looking elsewhere, we see the book of Acts and Matthew actually use the Greek word apokatastasis. In Acts 3, 19 through 21, Peter begs for the crowd he's preaching to can to repent so that, quote, the times of renewal can fall upon the earth when universal salvation, restoration that God has announced long ago through his holy prophets, so that that can fall on the earth. Matthew 17.11 says that Elijah will return to initiate the restoration of everything. The restoration of all things to love and wholeness, or what is in Hebrew, shalom, may initially seem foreign to the Christian faith, but I hope this little glimpse into the many passages of scripture that say otherwise can hold your attention for a bit. After the Bible was written, multiple church fathers also promoted this idea to different extents particularly figures such as Gregory of Nyssa or St. Maximus the Confessor. Now, I can already hear people coming for me. But Caleb, what about hell? Now, I've not read too much of the Bible, but I know that we're talking about a place of fiery flames that never go out and worms that gnaw on your flesh if you die in sin. And, well, that's true. The Bible does talk about hell. And it's terrible, and it's painful, and the place itself is eternal. But is it clear that the punishment within hell is eternal? And actually, could hell serve a positive purpose? For those of us like myself who were raised in Christian households and were traumatized by threats of hell for doing the littlest thing, the idea of hell being a good thing seems completely nonsensical. Hell was the weapon that pastors or parents or Sunday school teachers used to get us to fall into line and obey. But what if we grew up somewhere else? The idea of hell, in fact, developed as a form of justice and liberation, if you can believe that. Imagine for a second if you were enslaved by some colonial power in the ancient world, like Rome or Greece that conquered Israel. And what if year after year, decade after decade, generation after generation, you saw your friends, your family, your community abused, tortured, and mistreated without any justice for the ones that were tormenting you? It could start to feel really hopeless, like justice will never be done. This is the context in which the idea of hell developed. 
It is a way to bring evil people to justice even after death. Justice can be found even after death. This is why in Matthew 25:31 through 46, those who mistreat and oppress the poor and marginalized are the ones that are sent to hell. When we stop thinking about this fire as a weapon to make people afraid, and instead as a way to hope for justice after death, we can start to see how hell and universal salvation can fit together. And this is where the idea of theosis, deification, comes in as a process within universal salvation. While universal salvation might not be too difficult for us to grasp, the idea that salvation involves being made divine and entering into unity with God sounds outlandish, even blasphemous. How could it be that mere human beings could become like God? Isn't this polytheism, idolatry, some form of new age, new thought, or feel-good progressive Christian nonsense? But again, this idea is ancient, beginning in Christian scriptures. 2 Peter 1.4 is the most explicit. It says, through God's promises, we can escape the corruption that is in the world because of lust and become participants in the divine nature. Participating in the divine nature and escaping this world would have been familiar to the author of Second Peter and his Greek audience. Becoming divine is what heroes did in the Greek and Roman world. By their own power and mighty deeds, they could ascend to the heavens and become gods just like Zeus or Hermes. But in Second Peter, we see a difference between the Christian and pagan concepts of deification. While war heroes or emperors might have risen to the realm of godhood by their own strength, Christians did so through the power and promises of God alone. Human beings did not have to claw their way up to the heavens to become divine. The Christian God already wanted his children to be there with him. It was not just something meant for the powerful and wealthy and legendary. It was also, or perhaps especially, something meant for the poor and the vulnerable. And if the first were to be last and the last were to be first, or as Luke chapter 1 says, the rich will be sent away empty and the hungry filled, the powerful brought low and the oppressed lifted up, it might be possible that a slave or a poor beggar could be enveloped into divine nature long before an emperor or general even knows that's a possibility. St. Maximus the Confessor said it this way, Even if someone were to become the master of the whole world, he would only see one great disaster, his failure to obtain by grace the deification for which he is hoping. In other words, no matter how much you conquer of the world, no matter how much is in your bank account, no matter how highly you're respected in your community, you can never buy your way or achieve your way into deification. It comes as a grace from God alone, as a gift to the humble. 
Later church theologians, like Maximus the Confessor, combined the sacred tradition they were given with reflections about 2 Peter 1, 3-4 and other Bible passages. The great theologian Athanasius, largely responsible for the creation of Christian orthodoxy, summed up the Christian gospel this way in regards to theosis. The Son of God became man so that man could become God. When Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is understood in this way, the gospel looks very different from what we might expect. The Christian story is no longer about a God who has come to crush pitiful, dirty, unworthy, worm-like sinners. We are no longer sinners in the hands of an angry God. Instead, we are being asked to remember that we were made in the image of God. The Christian story is now that God wants to remind us who we are and restore us to our rightful place of goodness and love with Him. Our basic nature is not evil. We are not fallen. We are not inherently dirty or broken. We are good. We are godly. We are beloved children of God. And Jesus Christ, God's Son, took on human nature to remind us who we really are. Hebrews 2.10-11 goes so far as to say that Jesus is our brother, an older protector who has become man, suffered, and then was resurrected to divine glory, his rightful place, in order to show us the path that we also will take after our death. The great theologian Gregory of Nyssa, who helped create the very idea of the Trinity that we use today in Christian faith, combined the ideas of theosis or becoming divine with universal salvation. To Gregory, God's wrath was very real. God wouldn't invite abuser and victim, Nazi and Holocaust survivor, slaver and enslaved, murderer and murdered, to just kiss and make up, maybe sing Kumbaya around a heavenly campfire. Because that's not justice. The path toward salvation and process of theosis for an evil person, or indeed even a good person, would be painful. The fires of God's wrath burn hot, tearing away at our very being. The sins that we committed in life against our neighbor must be accounted for. Gregory said that God's punishment is a temporary purging or chastisement. Upon death, and indeed sometimes in life, God reveals his face to us. In front of the face of God, all evil is burned away and forgotten. We will be burned away the pieces of us that contain evil. But then when that process is over, pain will give way to joy and euphoria as God's face is made perfectly clear and we become more like her. Even the most wicked people will eventually have their sins and wrongdoings burned away by God's presence, and they too will experience God's joy. After all, Gregory said, the Israelites may have experienced sunlight during the plagues of darkness in Egypt, but after a few short days, the Egyptians saw the light again too. So too, the darkness of purgation will give way to the light of the divine nature for everyone. 
regardless of their religion or sins. Now, I know that I just threw a lot of theology at you, complete with a little Roman history and some weird Greek words, but I hope it's not hard to see how these ideas overlap with the psychedelic experience. In fact, I think it may be possible that psychedelic trips can prepare us for theosis after death and initiate it during life. There's three interactions between this theology and psychedelics that I'd like to explore here. First, the eternal exploration of God. Second, the role of repentance in psychedelic experiences and salvation. And third, preparing for death and theosis during our living lives today. Now, I'm sure there are some people here who would rightly reject theosis by saying that if we were being made God, there will eventually be a time when we are equal to God. To solve this problem, Orthodox Christianity suggests that there's a difference between God's essence and God's energies. Think of essence like the chemical reaction of fire itself, while the energies of fire are what it gives off heat and light. When we approach a fire on a cold night, we do not jump right into it. We can only get slowly closer, warming ourselves up next to it. I think this essence-energies distinction is a legitimate way to understand divinization. But psychedelics have also given me another perspective. God is so infinite, so vast, that no matter how much of God we explore, there will always be an eternity more to a discover. We will never be able to fully approach and become who God is, because God is completely infinite. I compare this in some ways to the psychedelic experience, because we frequently put bounds on possibilities without even realizing it. People talk to me after they have their first major psychedelic experience a lot, and I hear largely the same thing. They knew in theory that things could be different. They knew in theory that senses and cognition could be altered, but it was something entirely different to experience their alteration directly. They knew, for instance, that time could be altered, in theory, either scientifically, as described by the theory of relativity, or theologically, since God is supposed to be outside of space and time. But after they tried psilocybin or DMT, they actually got to experience time in radically new and different ways. Seconds felt like lifetimes. Hours flittered by in a moment. In one case, someone told me that time seemed so long, second by second, that they forgot who they were, and then slowly relearned who they were as time began to normalize again. These different experiences of time often seem to completely reorient a person. No longer is life just defined by days, weeks, and months stacked end-to-end -end upon each other into years and decades. Instead, there is a sense of understanding about what a millennia, or an era, or an eon really means. And it gives a little more perspective onto what eternity could be like.
Likewise, I've known some people who say that abstract theological or philosophical ideas can suddenly become very accessible or visible in a new light on psychedelics. I've had a couple powerful trips that have taught me theological lessons about God. I knew in theory that God could be with us at all times, but I relived in one trip most of my childhood and young adult years mostly the abuse and mistreatment I had been through. And in each and every vivid memory, I could see how God was there with me, helping me get back up every time I was pushed down. The idea of God's omnipresence and God's complete love for me, that she is with me no matter where I am, had always been something I believed. But now I truly understood it. And it is a lesson that has completely changed my life. A friend of mine told a similar experience to me in regards to magic mushrooms. They said, while deeply depressed and mid-theology degree, I hit a certain point where I decided I didn't care if I broke the rules. I would do anything to feel something. Fast forward to a few hours into the shrooms trip my roommate and I agreed on, and I decided I thought I was hungry and would try to eat a banana. I ate about half, then set it down on my bed and sat back to watch. As the peel turned brown in front of me, I began to grow upset at how unsatisfying it was to eat and how it died to give me nourishment. I became agitated that anything would die for my nourishment, especially animals. But ultimately, those things would fail and my body and spirit would need more. In a true theology student fashion, my mind turned religious. I began to contemplate a more Catholic understanding of the Eucharist, and suddenly, the concept of transubstantiation did make sense to me. Food was unsatisfying on a spiritual level, certainly. On, on a physical level, it never lasted. And when the idea of a literal, physical, spiritual satisfaction and consummation to us started to click, the idea of fasting began to make sense to me too. I wept. Then, like a true mystic, I didn't eat for eight days. After the school year began, I went on to write a major paper in defense of transubstantiation and on popular opinion in my evangelical university. And though today I have lost my faith in a way, I remain vegetarian. This story, I think, illustrates how our modern world can leave us devoid of awe, enchantment, and imagination, what is necessary to engage in theological and spiritual exploration of God. We stay in the humdrum of concrete, plastics, traffic, and bi-weekly paychecks that seem to mostly go towards bills. But our entire world, every inch, is teeming with wonder. Every leaf on a tree we pass has around 30 million cells, somehow using the burning ball of gas in the sky to create nourishment for itself and create oxygen for us to breathe. The earth under our asphalt streets goes down about 6,000 kilometers into a spinning, superheated molten iron and nickel core. And looking up into the night sky, we can see just nine of two trillion galaxies in the universe. And that's only 
possible because we are using the hundred trillion synapses in our own brains. Just imagine how much of the universe we haven't explored yet. What we haven't been able to explain yet. All with thousands of years of combined human research and journeys. If that is how vast and infinite our own physical universe is, how much more vast and ever wondrous must God be? And imagine how knowledge of that God, like knowledge of our natural world, can change who we are completely. I've seen a similar process for people who get cocky or comfortable with one type of psychedelics, particularly magic mushrooms. After taking high doses and many trips of one substance, they may think they've gotten a grip on the psychedelic experience and its meaning. They think they got this. But this is often blown away when they try a new and more powerful substance like DMT or salvia. It reveals an entirely different, even more enormous inner world that we could not even begin to explore. Similarly, theosis involves the exploring and engagement in the nature of God, even beginning to take divine nature upon ourselves, and then constantly be thrown into turmoil and wonder again. I think we'll find that every time we think we've come to the end of understanding who God is, there will always, always be more. Psychedelics can give us a glimpse of how the eternal adventure of theosis might look. Not only does it wake us up to the enchantment and magic that is all around us, the beauty that we have been trained not to see, but it can also open us up to trying to understand the difficult-to-comprehend attributes of a boundless, limitless, infinite God who invites us into an eternal trip through divinity. Applied to theosis, as we are perfected into the image of God throughout eternity, we will always find that there are new mysteries, new beauties, new details of the divine that will take us a trillion years to even comprehend much less to embody. And that is an eternity that I think I'm willing to explore. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Psychedelic Theology Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Remember that this is only part one of two episodes that I have released together today. Make sure to listen to part two now so that you can begin to dig deeper into psychedelics, the steps in developing our divine nature after death, and how psychedelics can prepare us for this post-mortem process. Right now, I am paying for all of psychedelic theology out of my own pocket, and I have no plans to stop but it would mean a lot to me if I could break even or even have a little extra spending money to pay for books and research material. To that end, please consider supporting me on Patreon, share this podcast with whoever you want, and follow me on social media. I'm so thankful for my current three Patreon supporters and for everyone else who's been able to give me a little more airtime in different ways. So until next time, remember, magic is real, God is real, enchantment is real, mystery is real, beauty is real. There is more to this world than grinding soulless machines and resources to fuel them. <laughs>